not only stretched, I'd be four or five inches taller at the end of that. They will be referred to from now on as four against five, so uh, you don't have to worry about me going through all those names again here this evening uh, because that really is the way it kind of lines out. There's four kings against five kings that are involved in the first few chapters there of Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> seems like whenever one is involved in living by faith, you just never know what's going to happen next. You know, that's sort of a, like a testimony that we could have. If uh, you do live by faith, you're going to soon realize that life takes a lot of turns, a lot of issues come and go. And uh, the same thing is true with Abraham and his life because he live by faith, you're not sure what's going to happen to him next. I, I don't think he would have in a million years figured this is going to happen, the events that take place in Genesis chapter 14. But you know, God wants to mature us in every area of life, not just a few, but in every area of life. It is God's plan for you and I to <clears throat> grow more like himself on a constant basis and someone has said that there can be no growth without challenge. And you know, that's true. Unless there's a challenge, there really is very little growth in our lives. And there can be no challenge without change. Because change will result in us having many challenges that come our way. And things that happen to us from day to day. This is the first war recorded in Scripture. You know, Genesis has a lot of firsts, doesn't it? There's a lot of things that happen, and quite rightfully so. It's the book of beginnings, so it would be right that this would be the first time that a war is mentioned. And it only is recorded in Scripture because it affects Abraham. Not Lot, but just Abraham. If Abraham had not become involved in this situation, I don't think we would have had this recorded for us. But God is concerned about Abraham because Abraham is the man who's living by faith. He's the one who's going to be the father of the nations. And so we have this brought into our scripture tonight because of Abraham and what's going on. I said earlier, there's five kings are going to revolt against four kings. And now we find that um, this starts an invasion. Now, you know, in the ancient world, if you've studied any of this kind of thing, you know that uh, these warfares were a lot about gaining uh, loot or uh, riches, <clears throat> captives. Uh, man was very brutal to one another. Well, he still is, but man was very brutal to one another in the ancient world. Life was very cheap, and individuals would, uh, or kingdoms, would come against other kingdoms. And Palestine, if you've done any kind of studying of the ancient world, you realize that Palestine is located on the... Um, on the crossroads between continents, Africa and Asia, and you've got to go north to Europe. So the whole area, and that's why we have Revelation, the Battle of Megiddo. Uh, wars have been fought in this area for a long time. Most people seem to think, and you know, I'm not going to debate this, that Sodom and Gomorrah probably are now under the Dead Sea, which is the lowest part of the earth. We don't have Sodom and Gomorrah anymore and they haven't really been excavated. Now, things around them have been, and we'll mention that here in a few moments. 
But um, this is a, a place that's <coughs> close to Israel, Palestine. And it would be on a trade route. And so these kings would want to secure this trade route. And so they would conquer the land. And after so long, you know, one of the... And if you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, you know that one of the favorite methods of these kings would be to have them pay tribute. How many times have you read about the nation of Israel where the king would go in and strip the gold, or he you only know, did it a couple times, I guess, because there was so much gold on the temple. They would take the gold off the temple, and they would give it to the king to appease them, uh, because basically a war was to get, to get money or to get some kind of resources. And so they would buy one another off, and then after they were conquered, they wouldn't always destroy their city. They would make them pay tribute, taxes we might call it, but it's tribute in order to survive. And these kings had been under the, the, the thumb of this Kealomar for, it says, 12 years. So every year, they're sending him some money to leave them alone because he had somehow uh, secured them in a battle. And as happened so many times, <clears throat> the king said, enough, we're going to not pay the tribute anymore. And, of course, the king doesn't like that. And so this is this, verses 1 through 11, we see, first of all, in our outline, we see this is a great battle that takes place. It really is <coughs> the first battle that takes place in Scripture. And it has been, this section has been the, um, the object of a lot of criticism, or used to be, I'll put it that way, by individuals who want to say the Bible is not true. Individuals who don't believe the Bible, they look for different circumstances and books in the Old Testament and certain events. And they try to say, well, you know, these people never existed or this is something that's been fabricated. Interesting enough, and if you've studied any archaeology, which you probably haven't, you know that they have dug up some tablets and some of these kings' and names are found on the tablets as they've done some excavation. So that pretty well... Uh, shot that theory through that this was some kind of a make-believe story because they have now uncovered some of these names of these kings on actual tablets that were recorded back in that day and time. So, you know, <clears throat> the idea is <clears throat> that this is very relevant. You know, I mean, it's God's Word. It did happen, and it's history, and it's something that we should always remember that God is a part of this. Now, I would think that five kings on their home turf would have a very good chance against four kings who are trying to invade them, wouldn't you? Now, you may say, <clears throat> I don't know how big their armies were. I don't either. But I'm just thinking about the kings themselves. And there are five. These four are invading these five. <clears throat> and the five do not do very well at all. Of course, two of them are Sodom and Gomorrah. So that really explains a lot, doesn't it? Uh, you wonder what kind of soldiers come out of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? Because of <clears throat> the kind of lifestyle that they had lived. And uh, it tells us that they're probably not prepared for a battle anyway. But they are soundly defeated <clears throat> in this battle that takes place in verses 1 through 11. There are these slime pits. Now, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to take all go into this too much, but I've got to think that the king who had his armies close to home would have understood the terrain, wouldn't you? And the last place that I would have had my soldiers was by a slime pit where they could back into it. I mean, it would seem just natural. So you've got to wonder about a lot of things going on in this battle, don't you? Because it says that they fell into these things, or at least that's where the language occurs here. And uh, the other kings defeated them rather badly. 
But we find really the whole purpose of this great battle is because of Lot and his relationship to the city of Sodom. God had something special for Lot in this war, and he is going to give to him some understandings. Lot, as we saw last Sunday night, had chosen the well-watered plain of Sodom. Abraham had chosen the mountainous country. Even though he was the older and the leader, he gave our preference to Lot at this point. And we found last week that Lot, in chapters 13 and 14, he first of all, he looked at Sodom. And then after that, he moved towards Sodom and he pitched his tent at Sodom. Now in chapter 14, we find that he is living in Sodom, verse 12. So he has taken up residence in this very wicked town, and we might also say that Sodom also lived in Lot. You know, that's even worse, isn't it? <clears throat> when the world starts to live in the believer. And of course, you and I would think, well, how do we know that Lot, and we answered this last week, but I'm going to say it again anyway, how do we know that Lot was even a believer? Because everything I read about him in the book of Genesis would cause me to say, you know, he is not a child who's going to, who's, somebody I'm going to meet in heaven one day. But I do have the, the passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit calls him a righteous man. And so <clears throat> there is something about Lot that resulted in him one day being in heaven with us because of the fact that he was a righteous man. Even though his life would have been the, you know, the very great example of a backslidden, we'll use that word, that's a word we don't use often anymore, but it's a, it's a good word we could use. He's a backslidden believer at this point because of the kind of <clears throat> lifestyle that he has chosen for himself. Where did Lot fail? Well, he failed in Egypt with Abraham. He got a taste of the world, didn't he? <clears throat> and because of that, he enjoyed it and decided he was going to stay with that. Lot also was a friend of the world. And when Sodom loses this war, he is condemned with the world. That happens many times. When you and I identify with the world, we can expect to suffer what the world suffers. Whenever the world suffers something, it's going to happen to come to us as well because we're going to suffer that when we're identifying with the world. And so we find in this great battle, <clears throat> he is captured. And this really is God's way of disciplining a lot maybe reminding him of some things that he should be very much attuned to. And God always disciplines his children. <clears throat> I mean, that's just part of who he is and what he's all about. He disciplines his children because he wants us to, because he loves them. One of the greatest ways that you and I can show discipline to somebody else, especially children, is through, I mean, love for children is through discipline. Now, I know that is very foreign to most thinking today because, of course, we have to, in our culture today, let them develop their own self-image and psyche. And, and, I mean, they can argue their way around certain things and make everybody else think they're wrong, but that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says that when we love them, we're going to discipline them because <clears throat> truly... All individuals who were ever born have a sin nature. That would be the law of total depravity. That is true for everyone. And God always wants what's best. I would think that any parent, and we could put God in that situation, 
would want what's best for their children. You know, I have very few times you hear a parent say, you know, I want the worst for my child. You ever heard anybody say that? Uh, not really. No, they want the best for their child. Now, after you observe them a while, you've got to wonder about certain things, don't you? Uh, but but they, initially, they're going to want the best. And God always wants the best for us. He is our Father, and so He wants the best for us in this, in this life. And so sometimes whenever... We don't listen. What does God do? He has to get our attention. You ever had somebody get your attention very painfully? That happens from time to time. And God sometimes has to get our attention. Uh, Of course, the classic example to me is Jonah. He had a hard time getting Jonah's attention. But he finally does. And at the end of the book, we're not really sure he's he's where he should be. You know, he should develop a few more areas. But uh, God wants to get our attention. And sometimes... God getting our attention can be very painful, and I would think that for Lot, being captured and everything he has being confiscated by this uh, raiding army would have got his attention. And notice there is a significant capture. That would be second on our outline, verses 12 through 14. And this significant capture is Lot. And we've talked about him already. I mean, uh, whenever they come and, and take this city, they take everything. They... They uh, confiscate everything that they want. You know, they, they would enslave people. The ancient world was brutal. Some of the people were more brutal than others, some of the different areas. But uh, human life was cheap. I hate to say it, but it's almost the way it is in our world today. I think we've made some advancements over these kind of tactics. But, but human life was very, very cheap back in these days. And God is captured. And so in his capture, something's going to have to happen. And here we find that verse 13, Abraham becomes involved. And of course, Abraham is always the hero of the account of Genesis, especially after the first couple problems that he had. It says, there came one that escaped. So this would be one individual who had escaped out of the taking of Sodom and Gomorrah by these kings. He came to Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol, the brother of Abner, and these were confederate with Abram. These these people had worked with Abraham before, it would appear. Uh, They had some kind of a relationship that they used with one another. And whenever Lot is taken, they... This one escapes, and he runs instantly to Abraham and tells Abraham what's occurred and what's happened. And Abraham is a remarkable individual. You know, we think of Abraham as a man who is uh, pitching his tent or building an altar. We think of somebody who is a shepherd who's taking care of his sheep, or I guess it'd be sheep, whatever kind of animals he had. I guess sheep would be a part of that. You know, all the different activities that would be participating in this. But we never really think of Abraham as a military leader, do we? But this man is very diverse in his talents because here he's going to lead a military exercise against these, these, uh, these, these kings. And they've already destroyed these five kings. And so for Abraham to take it upon himself to lead this expedition, we find that uh, he doesn't hold any grudge. You know, he might say, well, Lot, you made your bed, you just lay in it. That could have been one response, couldn't it? I mean, you chose this kind of a lifestyle. So, 
you know, it's not my responsibility. We see how large-hearted Abraham is, how forgiving the man is. Because he will organize his servants, and he will go, and he will capture and take Lot back. So the man is a man who does not hold a grudge, willing to forgive. There's some great qualities that we see here in the life of Abraham <clears throat> that should be true for you and I as individuals as well. We find that um, he was involved in, in helping this situation. You know, we should be known as people who help others. I mean, that should just be part of, a, of who we are. We should be individuals that are concerned about those around us. And Abraham is concerned about Lot. And it says in <clears throat> verse 14, And when Abraham heard that his brother, and he really was his nephew, was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house. So again, we have a picture of his means and his wealth. 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So, you know, the author here is talking about Dan because Dan wouldn't be around at that time. That would have been one of the tribes of Israel, so that would have been to the north. The mileage is about 120 miles, if uh, you would uh, read this and plot it out on a map. So Abraham is going to follow, and he's not going to do it <coughs> by any kind of military vehicle. It's going to be on foot. There's going to be a 120-mile march in order to free this one who has turned his back upon him. You know, Lot is quite the story when you read about him in this whole area. And Abraham also is such a contrast to him, <clears throat> as you see what kind of a life that he lived. But Abraham is a tactician. You know, he has some military savvy about him. We find in verse 15, it says, He divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Horban, which is the left hand of Damascus. That's a hundred-mile trip. So here he is. You know, Abraham is involved in this thing. Abraham <coughs> isn't exactly sure what he's going to do, but he gets this plan together. He gets all of his trained servants, these individuals that are part of his entourage, that are maybe, maybe some of them were part of protection. You know, you didn't have laws back in his time, so you had to have your own protection, your own police force, militia may be a better term for us today. But he pursues them, and uh, at least 100 miles, because this city would be 100 miles from Dan. After they win this battle, they continue to pursue after them. His strategy is to divide his forces up and smite them by night. You know, he's, he's got some savvy to him. God has directed him in his situation, and he's going to rescue this one. And he brought back all the goods... And also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. What a reunion this must have been. You know, after they've been captured by these kings, and I'm sure some of them have died because of the battle that's been involved. But it says now that he brings them back, and we won't go there, but the next part of this will talk about the fact that he ties of this to Melchizedek, you know, the king of Sodom, not Sodom, it's the king of Salem, get the word right, which becomes a very important part of the book of Hebrews. I mean, it really becomes a significant theme that the author of Hebrews uses to identify the priesthood that Jesus Christ is in. But Abraham here, you know, he didn't really get involved until he heard that Lot was captured. 
Somebody said that Abraham was separated but not isolated. Well, that's a good phrase. We need to be separated but not isolated. We don't need to allow the world to work <coughs> in us, but we have to also understand that we do live in this world. You know, we are individuals who are part of this world, this culture that we live in. There's no possible way that you and I can totally isolate ourselves from this world in which we live. I mean, it's where we, it's where we are, take up residence. Now, but we must not let this world influence us, the way we think and the things that we do. Uh, another word somebody used was that he was independent but not indifferent. I like those two words again. He's independent of Lot. He's independent of Sodom. But when he sees this need, his heart reaches out. And he tries to do something about these individuals. And so, you know, we as Christians, we must be involved with mankind. It's not enough for us just to isolate ourselves and, and think that we're okay because things are going well. No, you really should, we should be in individuals that are involved in this world in which we live. But I want us tonight to think about Abraham's army and make our applications accordingly. I want you to notice, and I've got them on the screen for you, six things that were true about Abraham's army that should be true of us in our lives today. Uh, even though Abraham was a <clears throat> man of peace, he was prepared for war. Whenever <clears throat> the opportunity arose, uh, came up, then we find that he had, he had his army and he wore. And he didn't fight for selfish motives. He wasn't out to, and, and we can see this from next week, you know, uh, he gives everything back to the king of uh, uh, to. Uh, the king of Sodom. He doesn't keep anything for himself. I mean, here he is expending all this energy of a 120-mile march and fighting and probably losing some of his men. All the things that would go on with this, but it's not for his own selfish motives. It's not for some personal gain. He's not doing this so that <clears throat> he could somehow <coughs> gain something. He, he gains nothing from this, as far as we can tell from Scripture. He wanted to help Lot. And I do believe it's lot more than it would be Sodom, because Sodom really had no pull on Abraham, but Lot did. He was part of his family and part of his, uh, who he was as far as a person. So uh, this army that he raises, you know, there are some characteristics of this army that we must see because it takes us into the spiritual realm. If we're going to have victory over the world, as Abraham had victory over these kings, there are certain things that must be true. And I want to share five or six of these with you tonight <clears throat> because all these were true of Abraham's army, and they also must be true of ourselves when we enlist in the army of God. Got them on the screen for you. Number one, <coughs> they were born in his household, right? Verse 14, it says, <coughs> he trained his, he armed his trained servants right in the middle of the verse, Born in his own house, 318, and then pursued them unto Dan. So they were born into his house. To have victory over this world, and I'm going to spiritualize this from this point on, all right? So bear with me. To have victory over this world, you must be born again. I mean, you say, well, that's so basic. But you know, sometimes we need basics. You must be born again. They were born into his house. They had to have a relationship to him. And so for you and I, if we're going to have victory over the world in which we live today, you've got to be born again. I mean, 
it would seem to me today there's a lot of people who think a lot about Christianity and they may, you know, play with the idea some, but there has to be an actual conversion that takes place in one's heart and one's life. That's the important part. We must be born again. The first birth that we have gone through, and it reminds me of Jesus Christ talking to Nicodemus where he says you've got to be born of water and the Word. Remember that there in John chapter 11 or 12 where he's talking to Nicodemus. You know, for all of us were born first of all, and I think it's what he's talking about there, into Adam, you know, born physically. Uh, until that happens, you know, let me just make a, you know, a statement. Until that happens, there's no way you can be born spiritually. You know, you've got to be born physically, right, first. I mean, it just makes sense. And so, you know, we have to be born into, by water and then by the Word, by the Spirit. So you have to be born into Adam, but the second birth is into the family of God. He overcame this world, and so can we. And so, you know, the first quality, first prerequisite, the first issue, if we're going to have any kind of victory over the world as a given one, you know, we've got to be born again. We've got to be a part of the family. We've got to be a part of God's household. We've got to uh, allow Him to work in our lives. Second thing I notice in verse 14 is, <clears throat> it says they were armed. He says that they, He armed them. Notice that. He armed His trained servants. You have to have some armament. <clears throat> you have to have more than zeal. You have to have more than courage to win a war. If somebody's going to <clears throat> win a war, they, can just, they can't just hoop and holler about it. But they've actually got to be armed. They've got to have some kind of, of uh, <clears throat> weapons in which they are going to use. And, you know, you and I must have effective weapons if we're going to win our victory over the world. Christian soldier, and that's what we are, right? We are soldiers of Jesus Christ. You and I must have on the whole armor of God, and you know where that's found, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. And that armor covers us completely because Satan has his darts that he is trying to use against us, and we have our head covered <clears throat> in the way we think. We have our, you know, our, our thought processes under the control of God. We have our truth on, which is part of this undergarment that we use. You know, we are always standing in the truth of God's Word. We have righteousness. It's part of who we are. We have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are able to move to where we're supposed to be. We have a shield. Now, faith is constantly protecting us against the the world and what the world is all about. And of course, we have our sword, our offensive weapon. And what did Jesus Christ use whenever Satan attacks him in the wilderness? He uses the Word of God. He quotes from Deuteronomy every time whenever he's attacking him. And he says, this is what God says. And that's what we have to use in this battle in which you and I find ourselves. We don't use fleshly weapons. Our weapons are not of this world. They are against, and our enemy is a principality and the power of darkness. We are in a spiritual war tonight. I know you understand that, but it's so true for us to know that this warfare that you, we find ourselves in is spiritual. Satan would love to undercut us. <clears throat> he would love to render us ineffective. And we have the Holy Spirit who's constantly working in our lives to encourage us. And so, you know, we've got to be armed. 
We've got to have some weapons. We've got to have the Word of God. We've got to have the armor of God firmly in place as we face this enemy that's going to attack us in the world that wants to undo us. After that, it says they were trained. Okay, his trained servants. So in this household, they had to be born, they had to be armed, but we need to be trained. What good is a weapon if you don't know how to use it? There has to be some training involved. And it doesn't matter how good the metal is or how good the weapon is, but if you're not trained, you're going to be easily defeated. Wouldn't it be terrible if we had a whole line of tanks ready to go out of the Lima factory? I understand they make up here in Lima, right? The Abrams. And they just got a new contract I saw the other day. They have all these tanks lined up, and nobody knows how to start them. Wouldn't that be crazy? I mean, here's all this equipment ready to go, but you don't know how to turn the key on. You've got to be trained. We've got to train in what we know. And a soldier has to know how to use his weapons. And he has to be able to use them effectively. You and I, that's what we have to do. We have to use our spiritual weapons. You've got to be trained how to use that spiritual weapon. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have a church. That's why we encourage Bible reading. That's why we have a Christian school is to learn to use the weapons that God has given to us, how to use the Bible effectively, <clears throat> how to read it in its context, how not to just rip out a verse here and there and make it mean something that's not really true, but read it in light of the whole and understand that it's written in a certain historical context and it has certain principles that we find there. We need to be trained how to use the weapons that God gives to us. We need to be trained on how to pray. We need to be trained on who our enemy is. We need to recognize our enemy. You know, part of any battle is intelligence, knowing the enemy. And if you know your enemy <coughs> and you know how he works, it makes you more effective. Satan's always going to work. We talked about this yesterday morning with the men. He's always going to work in three ways, right? First John chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, Lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's always going to be that way. Every time Satan attacks, he's going to attack in one of those three ways. And he's going to constantly use that over and over again. Now, he's good at it. So, you know, we've got to know our enemy. And Satan is the one who is trying to undo us. And in an army, you've got to follow the orders. The commander, God, gives orders, and we must follow those orders. An army has to work together. It has to have a central place <coughs> where everything is flowing from that gives coordination to the activities. And so the battle that we're in, we need to be trained to understand that we have certain understandings from God's Word. We have a captain, the Savior, who's giving us these directions. The better you know your Bible, the better you're equipped to fight the battle. The better you know your weapons, the better you are at them, using them. And when we are familiar with the Bible, God's Word, <coughs> it becomes a part of us, <coughs> then we can use it <coughs> in a way that shows Satan, you know, we know what you're doing. We know what tactics you're using, and we know this is the defense that we can use. And so we need to be trained. If we fail in the battle... It's the fault of the soldiers, not the equipment. And they haven't totally understood what's going on. 
So, you know, Abraham had trained soldiers. We need to be trained in this battle that we're fighting. They're born in his house. They're armed. They're trained. Fourthly, they believe in their leader. Now, I don't really have a verse for this, but, you know, you can see the whole picture here of how they followed him and divided themselves into different parts and they smote them by night. They believe in him. They rode 120 miles to make this surprise attack. That had to be a tough thing. Here they're attacking these four kings and they won. I'm sure God directed Abraham in this battle that he's fighting. But if we're going to defeat our enemies, we must trust our leader. We must trust our Lord and we must obey his orders. We must be sure that we're following what he tells us. So Joshua won, right? Who in the world would march around a city seven times and blow a trumpet and shout? I think he said, the battle is the Lord's. Or who would, would take 32,000 men and, and, and bring them down to 22,000 and finally come up with 300 and surround them with ram's horns and a torch and defeat an enemy. You know, that's our leader that does that. It's not our power that does that. What about David? And he won the battles that he won. We could go on and on and on. In Scripture, it's the individuals that are following the leader, Jesus Christ, or God, who are winning the battle. And so we must follow our leader today. We must do what he dictates. He is the one who's giving us our instructions. Fifth thing I find about this army is they were united in verse 15, it says, he divided them and they smote the enemy and then they pursue them to Damascus. There's not a number of armies. There's, there's not a number of leaders. Abraham is the leader. He's the one who has united this group behind him. And you know, we need to be united in our attack against Satan. Satan's going to constantly attack us. The world's going to constantly attack us. And we need to have a united front against that attack. They were coordinated. They were working together. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. You know that song? The banner that we follow is the banner of Jesus Christ. So we need to be united in our desire to see God's will done, to see individuals come to know Christ as personal Savior. We need to be united in, in, in the fact that we have a common purpose, a common understanding of what God has placed us here to do. The Great Commission, of course, would be that understanding. Sixth and last is that they were single-minded. They weren't out for revenge or private gain. I don't find them seated someplace dividing the spoil up. I've read, I enjoy reading about battles, and many times these armies, they'll attack something, and as soon as they get some, some spoil, they all just sort of forget the attack and sit down and start participating in what they've got. You know, that, that's not what this army's doing. <clears throat> they're continuing on. They're, they're moving out for the job that needs to be done. The victory's over, and they are out to f free these captives. They follow them 100 miles in order to do that. A double-minded soldier, he's destined for defeat because he doesn't really understand what his purpose is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that a soldier must not get entangled with the affairs of this life. Boy, what's the greatest example of great ability and talent that basically was almost unusable for God would be Samson, wouldn't it? 
What a sad story Samson is. All that ability, all that strength, basically he squanders it all, doesn't he? You see him there dying with all those Philistines in that temple because of the fact that they've got his eyes poked out when they shaved his hair off. No, we can't get entangled with the world. We can't let these worldly areas somehow bind us and render us ineffective in the struggle because our struggle is great. And as our world waxes worse, it gets more and more of a, of a challenge for us to, to keep our understanding of what God would have us to do in this world in which we live today. And so Abraham had a group of 314 in which he defeats, it almost sounds like Gideon's bunch, doesn't it? He defeats the entire group of these four kings who have just come and made war on all these nations and defeated them because he had God on his side and he had a certain type of soldier that he was using. So what was his achievements? Well, his achievements were the fact that he chased the enemies 100 miles. Verse 16, it says he brought back all, notice the word all, the goods. Also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. He brought them all back. He didn't siphon off some for himself, which was part of his pay. He didn't say, well, you know, I deserve this, or I deserve that. You know, some people don't do anything unless they get paid for it. You know how that works? This man, he says, no, it's not about what I can gain and how I can somehow get more and more and more. No, he frees all the captives. And again, I wonder <coughs> what Abraham and Lot talked about on that return trip, don't you? Over 100 miles. I'm sure they had some conversations. And I'm sure Abraham wanted to say so bad, I told you so. Well, we don't know, and he, and he may have. Ah, that's an argument from silence, which is the weakest kind. I don't know what he told him. But I'm certainly, I'm sure they had some kind of conversations. As they were marching back on this long trip, it took them for a long time to get back. And as they talked with one another, I would think that Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, is making some points to Lot. Lot, you need to get things figured out. Oh, I'm afraid Lot doesn't do that. He'll continue down this road. But Lot, you know, you have made some terrible mistakes. Trouble is, and this is the sad part of this, it didn't change Lot. He goes right back to Sodom, doesn't he? Isn't that amazing how many Christians do that? Go through the trial and then go right back to where they started. Not really learning or anything that God has told them. Just glad they got through. Just glad that things are over. He returns a lot again. He lost everything next time. You know, this time should have been a warning to him. Look what can happen to you, Lot. Next time, he's going to lose wife, daughters, possessions, city, He's going to lose everything but just what he has. Well, he have his two daughters with him, and that's another whole story. But he's going to lose it all. God's going to judge him even more severe because of that. So we're in a warfare. 
In this warfare, though, we must have certain qualities that are true of us. Abraham won a great battle because he followed God in his direction. He was concerned about his brother. He uses that term there in verse 14. His brother, Lot. We must also be concerned about those around us, and we must always be sure that we are winning the battle against this world. The world wants to render us ineffective. I trust tonight that you are using your armor. You're training your armor so you know how to use the Bible and prayer and God's Word. And you understand that we have a purpose, a mission that we must perform in this world today. What a great privilege it is to be a servant of the King. Father, <clears throat> I thank you for the example tonight of Abraham. <clears throat>